Japan was able to deal with every trade uh, request I've had for my materials, I'd probably be a multi-millionaire and have 100 people working for me. But the quality would not be the same and uh, I don't think it, it would really happen. I'm just content keeping it the way it is. This is Steve Cooper, father of the UK's BFFI and proprietor of the boutique fly tying shop Cook's Hill. In today's episode, we talk to Steve about transitioning from being a science teacher to skinning partridge and creating one of the finest fly fishing shows in the Northern Hemisphere. I'm your host, Gordon van der Spey. Don't panic, this is The Feather Mechanic. Okay, so the first thing I want to ask you is, tell us a bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, I was born and bred in Staffordshire in England. Uh, I've been fishing since I was about four years old. With, my dad was a keen angler, and he ho- always took me along on his fishing expeditions. When he, I was about 15 or 16, he took up fly fishing. I also took up fly fishing. Very shortly after that, I took up fly tying. And as a kid, being about 18, 19, I was tying flies fairly high level, entering competitions in magazines, and I was supplying uh, competition anglers with flies, mainly uh, winged wets, uh-huh. uh, maybe tying up to 500 a week, mainly winged wets uh, back in the day because the competition angling in the UK was primarily wet fly fishing. Uh-huh. Uh, also tied for local shops and basically paid my way through college time flies. That's brilliant. And what year was that, Steve? A long time ago. It would be uh, the early 80s. Early 80s. Yeah. I've, I've actually got magazines from that, that period. Trout Fisherman, Trout and Salmon. Uh, I used to read them as, as, as a child. They yep. were really fantastic. Well, back, back in those days, the, the competitions in the magazines were the Benson Hedges fly tying. And there was also trout fishermen competitions, which I had a bit of success in. Always had runners up in the Benson Hedges in the day when Ollie Edwards was winning them all. I remember, because the English anglers have always been at the forefront of of stillwater comp angling. Yeah. You know, there were, who was Chris Ogborn, yeah. Ian Barr, uh, I mean, I don't back, think back in the, those days, people like Brian Ledbetter were big names and uh, the, the bars and people like that came later. So, so yeah, so that, I mean, even to this day, I mean, British anglers are at the forefront of stillwater angling. They, that's what they specialize in. They're extremely good at that. Um, what I've always found interesting is... Um, how how technical stillwater angling actually is. You know, a lot of people don't view it as such, but if you look at the whole development of fly lines, for instance, and, and, and what some of these comp anglers carry, some of them will carry, I don't know, 12 different lines just for a day's fishing. Absolutely. So, more, more than that, some, some of them. It's all about depth. Locating the depth of the fish is the key thing when you're fishing on the big reservoirs. So, okay, so how you got onto my radar was for years and years, it actually happened with the classic, when I started tying classic salmon flies, and I had to start looking for for sources for materials. And 
with classic salmon flies, as you know, finding quality materials is always very difficult. And sometimes when you find quality materials, finding finding matching pairs is problematic. I'll give an example. So when I started, I, I would buy bronze mallard pairs from, from a renowned company. We won't mention names. We don't need to. And they would sell five pairs in a packet. And every time I opened up those packets, out of the five pairs, I'd probably only have two pairs. They would all look like pairs, but when you put the feathers in cross-section, they the angles that the fibers came off the rachises would be slightly different. So, And the nice thing about your stuff is you do everything on your own. How do you, how do you manage to actually do that? Do you, and, and where do you find the time? Um, difficult question, really. I mean, I've obviously handled a lot of fly time materials, so it's sort of a, an acquired knack, which is, uh, which is actually pretty easy once you've got it. But I suppose, like all things, it's difficult to acquire. I mean, bear in mind, I've started Cookcell in 1998, which the idea behind Cookcell was to pr- provide quality materials. And the reason for that was when I was doing a lot of fly tying, I discovered that a lot of the stuff I could actually physically buy was second was set quality or poor quality, and I wasn't happy with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I also do a bit of shooting and help out on some of the uh, estates, I could access quite a lot of materials for free. And I also rapidly discovered that giving away materials was easy. I could give away hundreds of pheasant tails and whatever else I could find mm-hmm. uh, down to our local club, no problem at all. So I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll sell some materials. And Cooksell came from that. I was teaching at the time. I was a, a science teacher for 15 years. Okay. And uh, eventually got to a point where, well, basically the wife told me, make a decision either give up the fly time materials or give up the teaching. So I gave up the teaching. <laughs> but I mean, at, at the time I'd be doing things like uh, getting up in the morning, doing some mail order, going to work, then get in the car direct from work, drive hundred miles to give a talk or a demo for a fishing club, drive back at two in the morning, get up again. And it was getting a bit relentless. So something had to give. So I, I gave up teaching in uh, 2003 full time and, uh, now concentrate purely on Cooksell, which is all about quality materials. Yeah, that, that is always the problem. I mean, in South Africa, we get a lot of like uh, uh, what they call Orange River Franklin, very similar to your partridge, but a little bit different, but mm-hmm. similar birds. But the hunters, when they shoot these things, they shoot them to smithereens, you know? Okay. So you kind of want to request, can you just shoot that pheasant in the head, please, so that I can use the rest of its pelt? I mean, th- this is part of the problem because actual value of shot game is very, very low. I mean, over here, a lot of the game deals will not actually pay for pheasants or partridge. They'll collect them, but they won't pay the shoots anything for them. So a lot of these birds aren't treated with a lot of respect after the shot. They've only got value when they're flying through the air and before somebody shoots them. Once okay. they hit the floor, they're, not, they're pretty much worthless and uh, sometimes they're not well treated. So, um, so tell me, so you started, so you started Cooksill and you started that out of need. Um, do you have anyone who works for you? The only people who work for me, I've got a couple of lads who will help me out when we do shows. Other than that, it's literally just me. 
I, I do the lot. Every, everything that's put in the packet, all the feathers that are sorted, all the bird skins that are done, I do them all. Okay, that's fantastic. And what I like about what I like about what you do is that you actually do skins. You know, I think I think skins are becoming a. A lot of these bigger firms are doing feathers in packets, and I've I've never liked that. Tell me why you. What is the benefit of doing skins? I mean, if you do full skins, you've got it's like having a cock cape. Really, uh, you can select exactly the color and size of feathers you want. It's all neatly arranged for you because nature's clever. Nature, nature feathered and color grades all, all the feathers for you. So instead of rooting through a bag of loose feathers, if you want a small feather, you can, uh, you know, whereabouts to go on, say, a partridge skin up on the neck to get a small feather. If you want a bigger one, you move further down. It's pretty straightforward, really. And uh, they're, they're also nice things to have, I think. People sometimes buy skins, never use them, and just get them out every every so often and look at them. I'm sure people collect these things. <laughs> well, fly ties are hoarders by nature. I mean, you only have to look at these these, these Facebook sites, these hackle sites, where where people like, I don't know, you get tires in the States who have like 80 capes, which they're not going to use. They're not going to get through all of them. Um, so, so yeah. Um, okay, and tell me, do you do you export any of these feathers? I do send some stuff abroad. Uh, only in small amounts. I mean, if I was able to deal with every trade uh, request I've had for my materials, I'd probably be a multimillionaire and have 100 people working for me. But the quality would not be the same, and uh, I don't think it, it would really happen. I'm just content keeping it the way it is. I mean, bear in mind now I, I'm, I'm 60 next year, and my teaching pension kicks in, so I might retire at some point. <laughs> No, well, look, I think the fact that you are hands-on and that you are a tire and that you're involved in the sport makes a massive difference. I mean, you see it with commercial fly tying as well. People who fish themselves tie a better fly than someone who doesn't necessarily fish, you know? Yeah, I would agree 100% with that. I mean, you've got the knowledge, I mean, particularly with materials. If you've tied a lot of flies, you know what you're looking for, and that goes a long way towards uh, sorting out the quality. I mean, the other thing I'll say about Cooksville is people think it's some big setup, and as I've just told you, there's only me doing this, and it runs out of a, a small room at home, which is approximately three metres by three metres, which, okay. I, which I, I, I share with my uh, working spaniel, Peggy. And uh, she, she's my main helper, although she doesn't help much. She just sort of gets in the way. <laughs> uh, and and in terms of storing all this material, I mean, obviously it doesn't fit in your three-by-three-metre room, does it? 90% of it does. Really? Floor-to-ceiling, uh, wrapped out with uh, with boxes. I mean, I have got some bulk stuff stored elsewhere, but the majority of it does fit in my little workroom, and it's amazing how much stuff you can actually store. And, I mean, you obviously do it cleverly as well for all of that stuff to fit in your three-by-three-metre room. Yeah, it's uh, it's very organised for me, but other people would find it very difficult to work with, if that makes sense. No, I know exactly. I mean, my, my fly tying cupboard's the same. Yeah. I mean, my wife. My wife's always asking me to tidy it up. I'm like, it's tidy. I know where everything is. That's all we need to know. Exactly the same scenario. My wife said I, I, I couldn't possibly help you in any way because I'd never be able to find anything. 
do you still fish? Yes. Yep. Fish most weeks, mainly mainly on the reservoirs. Uh, you know, the, the classic still water type fishing. Fish a lot of dry fly in the summer. Um, yeah. In the in the early season, it's more sort of pulling lures and things. But uh, yeah, do a fair bit of fishing. Just been fishing on a, a little reservoir up in the in the hills, which has a really good uh, vulgata mayfly hatch, which is which is nice. So yeah, try to fish whenever I can. Okay, that's fantastic. Um, tell me a bit about Iceland. I, I, on Facebook, I see you you enjoy going to Iceland. I think you probably go almost yearly. Is yeah, so? yeah. We we haven't been this year, and we haven't been we haven't been since COVID for various reasons, mainly directly linked to COVID. But we shall shall be going next next season. Uh, yeah, the reason we've been out to Iceland, uh, a friend of mine, Skuli Christensen, who's Icelandic, came across to uh, one of the the fly shows over here, and rapidly became sort of friendly with him, and he he wanted to do a tour of the. Uh, English fly tying clubs demonstrating. So I said, no problem, come and stay with me for a couple of weeks. And we had a bit of a guided tour and we sort of hit it off. And as a reciprocation for that, went out fishing with him in, uh, in Iceland. He lives right in what they call the Golden Circle, which is the main tourist part of Iceland and uh, near the big lake where they catch the monster trout. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, been out there. I mean, most years, five or six of us will go out, all close friends, and we'll do a fair bit of fishing. Again, mainly lake fishing. And mainly for brown trout and arctic char, and the fishing out there can be phenomenal. We're not adding these real monster fish because mm-hmm. we we go too late in the year. But browns up to sort of ten pounds, char to about six pounds, and lots of them. You know, we'd expect five hundred to a thousand fish for a week's fishing. That's great fishing, and those are great fish as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, there's one place we fish, which has got brown trout, sea trout and char in, in abundance. And, you know, you'd go out in the morning and expect to catch 30 or 40, no problem at all. And how are you fishing for those mostly? Are you nymphing them or are you fishing dry flies? Or Right. Well, when we first went out there, we were fishing sort of uh, standard sort of wet flies, small lures like you'd fish on the reservoirs here, which is mm-hmm. great for the brown trout. But in the deeper lakes with the char, you're waiting forever for those flies to get down to the correct depth. So uh, a bibio, which everybody knows a bibio, black red, uh, black mm-hmm. fly, was always a good fly. So I tied a bidio, which is basically a similar sort of fly, but uh, orange or a red three mil tungsten bead on a 10 or 12 standard wet fly. Black seals for a body, ribbed with silver, red tag, glow bright red tag. And obviously gets quick down to the uh, the char a lot quicker because it sinks faster. So you're fishing a floating line, long leader, one of those on the point, a baby or a buzzer on a dropper. Happy days, lots and lots of char. And and how how would you compare char to trout? I mean, I've never caught a char. They've always they've always fascinated me. Uh, the beautiful fish, stunning fish, fight really hard. Uh, I don't suppose you've caught any grayling either. I haven't caught any grayling. Right. Well, grayling, when you get them, tend to fight in a distinctive way, sort of a constant bump, bump, bump when you've got them on. They, they don't fight on the surface. They tend to fight down deep. And uh, char are very much like that. I mean, the other thing with char, the takes generally are very, very subtle. When when you're, uh, you, you know, basically you cast a long line, you've got your weighted fly on the point, let it count down to the correct depth, which is normally 
say, 10 seconds. And then you start to retrieve, and you feel as if you're hitting little bits of weed. And you think, well, is that a fish or isn't it? And you try and lift into it, nothing. And then if you just keep retrieving, suddenly it'll all tighten up and you're into a beautiful Arctic char. And they are stunning fish. I mean, you get a nice char, three or, three or four pounds in weight, they're amazing fish. But the little ones are good too. You, you can catch them on dries. At certain times, if there's a lot of buzzer coming off, they'll come up and take dries. Okay. So they're not exclusively down deep, but in the main, they're sort of down a little bit, certainly. Okay. Yeah, buzzer fishing is something that I, I totally love doing, you know. Uh, in South Africa, where I live, I don't, think, I don't think we understand buzzer fishing the way you guys understand buzzer fishing. But buzzer fishing is deadly if you understand what you're doing, you know, and you get it right. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But, uh, I mean, over here we, we fish a lot of that style fishing. And, uh, again, depth is usually the key thing. You've got to get those flies to the right depth. Once you find that depth where the fish are feeding, then it can be fairly prolific. Well, look, it's sort of, it's sort of spread to other parts of the world as well. I mean, you guys, I, I, I would I would say you were the pioneers of buzzer fishing. And then that sort of spread, like in Canada, buzzer fishing's massive in Canada. But, Sorry. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, all these things. But I mean, the Irish are now into it as well on their lakes, which they didn't really do a lot of before fishing, uh, particularly these uh, sort of the super glue buzzers, which yep. are designed to sink quickly. But um, we've gone away from sort of traditional wet flies, and a lot of the guys there are fishing sort of more contemporary patterns. Okay. Yeah, and they, I don't know, they're sort of very preoccupied with bung fishing, you know. Not, not a fan of bung fishing. It's just no, float, me neither. Float, float fishing by any other name. Yeah, bung fishing is float fishing, and that's what it is. You, you might as well put a worm on the end. But be that as it may, some people enjoy that. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan at all. No, it doesn't do it for me, but uh, if that's what floats you about, that's okay. I, I just think there are better ways of doing it, like more effective ways, you know. Yeah, I mean, way. what it does do, it, it's good for finding the depth the fish are at. Yeah. You know, set, set up with about 40 flies on a leader, one every six inches, and see which one takes the fish. Because <laughs> <laughs> usually it's the depth that's critical and not the fly. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's true. Um, tell me, now, you also... You own the BFFI, is that correct? Yeah, myself and my wife run the British Fly for International. Uh, the story behind that, in about 2002, we went to the Dutch Fly Fair and we had a very enjoyable weekend at the Dutch Fly Fair and uh, there was a little small group of us sitting around and we said, hang on a minute, why haven't we got a show like this? So we thought we'd have a go at doing it. Initially, I uh, did that with a, a guy named Steve Thornton, who you may have heard of. Yes, uh, so initially I sorted out all the sort of uh, trade side of it and he sorted out the fly town side of it. We did that for three years and then there was a, a part of the ways I decided uh, I'd be better off uh, working on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my wife got involved and now we, we run it as a team. And it's one of those teams where we work brilliant as a team as long as we're not in the same room. <laughs> uh, and, and just to our listeners, his wife's name is Bridget. And he does love her very much. I can sense this from everything he says about her. Um, but, but yeah, she stays out of your three-by-three-meter room and you stay out of her three-by-three-meter room. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
the, the way it works, uh, she organises all the fly tying side of it and all, all the pretty things at the show, looking after people, making sure people get fed and watered, uh, sorting out the staff who uh, look after the fly tyres. And I organise the trade side of it, and I also do the sort of logistics of setting it up, building things, and it seems to work pretty well. It's been it's been a very, very rewarding thing to do, and everybody over here seems to love it. Well, it's one of the most successful shows in the world currently. Well, we, we like to think so, and we also like to think it still maintains that sort of nice, simple sort of family feel to it, where everybody is sort of involved. It's not over commercialized, and uh, yeah, we, we're dead pleased with it, really. You know what I love about the whole British approach to fly fishing? I find that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I find that the British are far more accommodating and welcoming. And 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 want to learn from from other people than say the Americans. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, but I sometimes find that America, the American scene is very insular. I'll give you an example. So if you go read or find find a book about Euronymphing in America, invariably the book was written by an American. Okay, but if some European guy had to go write a book about Euronymphing, the book probably wouldn't do that well. But if another American wrote a book about Euronymphing, it would sell. They kind of want to listen to other Americans, you know, and 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 traditionally we've always seen fly fishing as being something that developed in in the UK and America, but there's a massive, massive world of fly fishing in Europe and that I mean the first for example the first uh, genetic feathers were from Gallo de Leon Cock de Leon as most people call it Um, and that was in Spain and that's been going for 500 years you know Um, the the European well development of European fly fishing scene has been massive and what I like about the British is that they they welcome this you know yeah, I think the British are sort of more, what's the word? They're not quite as brash as the Americans. They're a little bit more reserved. And I don't 100% agree with what you said, but, uh, yeah, I, I know what you mean. It's sort of, they seem more open, should we say. No, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what I mean. I'll tell you why I say this, okay? I'll tell you why I say this. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not bad-mouthing the whole American scene, but I'll tell you why I say this. So I released a book two years ago, okay? Yep. Every single British magazine did a review on the book. They said, oh, yeah, something new, you know. And do you think I've had a single review in an American magazine? <laughs> Probably not. What, what you've got, you got to also bear in mind is the, the British magazines, and don't take this the wrong way, are always desperate for something to put in there. I know for a fact if we went fishing today and we didn't catch anything and we only fished for 10 minutes but we wrote an article about it you could probably get it in one of the British magazines really yeah yeah I mean I'm not a great fan of the, the, the British magazines I'm not, and certainly I mean for Cook's I never advertise 
because it doesn't really, I don't need to advertise now, but even in the early days, I was very reticent about advertising because I don't think that brings much business your way. So, uh, yeah, I think the magazines could actually be a lot better, a lot more thought-provoking. And, uh, you know, some some new stuff, it's all a bit trotting out the same tired old uh, characters, I always feel. And that that's what, with the British Fly Fair, we've tried to go away from that. If you notice, we don't have any of the real big names there because they've had their 15 minutes in the sunshine. Let's get the new and up-and-coming people. And oh, and the new and up up and coming <laughs> new and up and coming people tend to uh, be keener and cheaper too. No, and you've got some fantastic tyres. I mean, I, I I speak with Paul Slaney quite regularly, uh, Gareth Lewis. There's some fantastic tyres. Yeah, a lot of good young tyres coming up in the UK. And again, the, the challenge is with BFFI. To keep changing the tyres, you don't want the same old, same old again. You got to, you got to bring up the new people, and it, it's difficult sometimes because you feel okay. Somebody's tied three or four years, and you feel a bit of loyalty towards them. But for the sort of common good, you don't want that that person every year. You've got to keep changing, mm-hmm. else it becomes stale and uh, starts to starts to become a bit sort of jaded. And uh, I think then when you get to that point, it's time to give up, really. How do you keep the show fresh every year? How do you do that? Uh, with, with the tyres, try and rotate at least a third of the tyres every year. A third new tyres, a third sort of uh, established tyres, and a, a third sort of you pick and choose from on a, every three yearly basis. So you've always got something new to see there. With the theatre presentations, different things. You know, you don't want somebody who's been... And writing in magazines for thirty years about the same thing, giving him a talk on it because it's 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 been done. Try and get something different. If you've got some of the foreign tyres coming off, people from uh, with foreign stands, get them up there and get something different out there. I think that, that's the challenge to keep it fresh. It's not always easy. Sometimes you have to work with what you've got. Okay, no, I'm hearing you. I mean, I I I run our show in South Africa. Uh, we've done three already. And I also found that, you know, it's difficult keeping it fresh. Also, in terms of product development, uh, you know, from year to year, things don't change that drastically. I mean, so, so if you had a show like every five years, then then there's lots of new developments. But, but I mean, from year to year, that was one of the comments I got about our show. People were like, yeah, but we saw all the same stuff last year, you know. Yeah, I mean, that, that's very true. I mean, development isn't that quick. And the, the other thing with, with, like, the BFFI, we've got most of the people who actually are in the market to attend shows actually attending. So it's it's difficult. And because it's successful, they want to keep coming back. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't really say to a loyal customer who's, who's paid, paid your money for a stand, well, sorry, we don't want you this year because you're a bit old and boring because we've got this new guy coming on. It doesn't really work like that. <laughs> so uh, it, it's difficult but uh, we're fortunate in that the venue we use is relatively affordable and also large so we can always accommodate new people and uh, try, try and fit everybody in and try and turn around what you can I mean at the end of the day there's only so much out there you, you've got to go with it but I think the key thing with BFFI now it's, it's I can't remember how many we've done 20 I think and uh it's firmly established in the calendar. 
everybody loves it and it's seen as the sort of pre-season meeting point and people come for the social side to see people they only see once a year and spend a day with like-minded people and i think that's a key thing and do you have a lot of people from from europe who come over for the show we have some i mean it, you, you don't get a lot but you do get some okay uh, people quite a few from ireland we've had them from sweden and holland and yeah we, we get a few but not, not thousands because obviously you've got to fly or get ferry so it's, it's not a simple just drive there it's a little bit more involved than that okay and tell me in terms of tying did you ever go into the whole classic salmon fly fly world no, not personally. Uh, I used to tie a lot of hair-wing summer flies when I was sort of tying semi-commercially. But uh, no, cl classic summer flies uh, was something I didn't really get involved with. And the other thing with my fly tie now, it's very much on a need-to-use basis. The thought of me sitting down all day and tying 130 or 40 flies, it just wouldn't happen. It's sort of going fishing tomorrow, need half a dozen of these. Oh, God, I've got to tie them. Okay. And, and what do you predominantly tie nowadays? Uh, predominantly tie nowadays would be some wet flies, the, the, the good fish-catching wet flies, bibios, things like that. Uh, small lures, start of the season, sort of little beadhead tadpoles and things. Mm -hmm. uh, bright sort of coloured dropper flies to fish alongside them. But we don't fish big lures. They'd be sort of on an eight standard shank at biggest, short marabou tail. And uh, also, obviously, mayflies, daddy long legs. I also like tying a lot of CDC emerger type flies and foam dries. Certainly in the summertime, that predominantly that's what I'm fishing CDC emergers and foam dries. Well, your CDC is fantastic. I mean, your wild mallard CDC is just next level. The reason the wild mallard CDC is so good is because it's taken directly from the ducks, from shot ducks, made sure it's dry and clean. And basically put in bags and it hasn't lost any of the natural oils people will tell you the cdc feathers is all about the structure of the feather yeah but it's also about the natural oil in there and if you look at a bag of my wild mallard cdc quite often you'll see that the polythene of the bag has gone like sort of dimpled yes yeah, so it's from the oil that's reacting with the oil you, you won't see any other cdc that does that particularly dyed stuff because no matter what they tell you to get it to take the dye they've got to take the oil out and it never functions as well well, that's what I've always said. You know, when people said to me, no, but they don't take the oil out when they dye it. I mean, anyone who's dyed any material will tell you if there's any oil, it basically is a preventative barrier to any dye entering the fiber. It's that is just a fact. It's science. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I, I fish a lot of CDC flies and nothing performs as well as the wild mallard CDC. I don't care who says it. it. It's just a fact that it is the best CDC for practical fishing. Well, not just practical fishing. It's so versatile because if you look, so a lot of the, a lot of the CDC we get nowadays comes from domesticated ducks. Okay. Yep. If you look at the actual shape of the feather, it's kind of very limiting in terms of how you can use it. Some of these bigger feathers are not good for wings. I mean, if you look at the actual shape of the feather, um, they're not good for down wings. They're basically good for, for using in, 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 in a split thread application with clips. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, the, the uh, domestic duck, 
feathers are always longer and sort of more sparse, I think, than the, the wild stuff. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about them, if you look at domestic ducks, they're never as clean and pristine and as waterproof as proper wild ducks, and that's because the oil in them isn't as good. Okay, fantastic. Um, and what I've also found amazing is that your price point is always very, very reasonable. Like a, a bag of of CDC, the, your bigger bag, is twelve pounds. That's that's amazing. That can soon be remedied. I can make them twenty pounds, no problem at all. And no, don't do that, Steve. <laughs> uh, well, re- the reason for that basically is because what does that bag of feathers cost me? It costs me some petrol and some time. And other than that, I mean, on, on a day in the winter, I might get several thousand pounds worth of uh, wild mallard CDC, and it'll cost me a, a day of my time, some fuel, and maybe I'll I'll give somebody twenty pounds to have a drink for let me, give me the pleasure of plucking their feathers because all those feathers would be thrown away otherwise. How many mallards would you say pluck in a day? Because they're not they're not that many CDC feathers on a duck. No, I mean, sometimes, I mean, if I if I do five, five or six hundred, that would be a, sort of a couple of hours work. And yeah, but after a couple of hours of plucking CDC, you've had enough for doing it, particularly if it's cold and the ducks are wet. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I've done as many as sort of a couple of thousand in, in, in a sort of morning, but that's hard work. Because the, these things are all stacked in trays, 12 in a tray, and you've got a, the, the trays are stacked 12 high. On, on pallets, and there's a bit of physical effort in it, and but by the time you've done a few, you, you can tell you've done it. Okay, okay. Now I can understand that. And you don't, you're not washing feathers down or anything like that. I try to avoid washing things at all costs. If if it's dirty, don't collect it in the first place. Don't bother. Too much effort. The only time I would ever wash anything if it was something which is really, really scarce, say. Uh, some golden plover or something like that, which are hard to get, and mm-hmm. they, they were muddy or a bit bloody, then I'd wash them. But usually, if it's dirty, don't take it in the first place. Just take the good stuff. Well, that's, uh, I mean, that makes sense to me. Eh? It also helps the sort of selection process. You haven't got to start worrying about half of it's dirty and you're throwing it away. Well, you're going to throw it away, just don't collect it in the first place. That, that's key. Only collect the good stuff. See, people are always asking me in South Africa because I do demonstrations and that kind of thing. And they're always asking me, where do you get that CDC from? And then I say, from from the UK, Steve Cooper. Um, because it is, it's really fantastic stuff. I'm, I'm also a fan of CDC. Uh, I always laugh because I think, you know, genetic hackle has taken like, I don't know, a little bit less than 100 years to get it to where it is now. CDC hasn't changed ever. I mean, CDC has always been CDC. Yeah, but nobody's selectively breeding birds for the uh, CDC feathers, so it won't change. And that's what I've loved. I mean, it's almost like CDC is the ultimate fly tying feather. It's extremely versatile. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, I, I do think people are obsessed with genetic hackle. Certainly, the Americans are. And personally, not a fan, not something I use. Well, look, what I tend to find is I, I, I do believe in this whole concept of form following function. And I do think that the material used is sometimes dependent on the fly fishing culture of a country. 
um, if, 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 if you're looking at faster, more turbulent streams or rivers, obviously then you need stiffer materials to, you know, for prolonged use of that fly. Um, so, so I'm not saying I wouldn't use CDC, but I would tend to then want to use some hackle or, or deer hair or elk or, or that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, so I think the, the waters that people are fishing influence the flies being designed and being fished and that kind of thing. Well, clearly, because they've got to function in that particular situation, haven't they? There was at one stage an outfit in the UK doing um, genetic hackle. I think I think there's still a company, Bronte Hackle, in, in Ireland. Am I right? Yeah, Br- Bronte Hackle uh, is uh, run by a friend of mine. And, uh, yeah, they, they do it. And there's also Chevron Hackles in the UK. But is she still doing hackle? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Really? I thought yeah. she stopped that. I thought she was only doing like the the, the pheasants and, and that sort of thing. No, they're still doing genetic hackle. But what they don't sell direct to public anymore. It's all through uh, retailers. Okay. Okay. And those, obviously, those birds are also originally from. Uh, USA stock, am I right? I would guess so, yeah. Originally, it was a company called DJ Hackle. Okay. And it was uh, bought out by Christina and Chevron, and uh, it obviously evolved over the years. But uh, I think they were of uh, US stock. Wouldn't be 100% certain, but I guess they would be. Because I read a, I think it's one of the old, I think it's a 1983 edition of one of my trout fisherman magazines. Davy Watton used to write a column, always on fly tying. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's this article in there about these, uh, uh, about these uh, hackle birds that, that were basically imported to the UK. And, and, and they were saying how great this is. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to read the old stuff and then look now and see where did it actually get to? Where did it develop to? Yeah, I back in the days when I was doing competition fly tying, I won a competition somewhere, and the, the prize was two Mets capes. And at the time, they were the best capes you'd get. And I've still got one of them. And when you look at it now, it's so inferior in quality to the modern genetic hackle. So you can see the progression has been quite sort of dramatic, really. Well, I mean, it's 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 it has been dramatic. But I also do think one can sort of overbreed uh, birds as well. I, th- I think sometimes, uh, for instance, if you look at the wet flies now, some of those, the, the, the quality, you really need nice quality Indian and Chinese capes, you know. At, at, Absolutely correct. I mean, genetic hackle is inappropriate for use on wet flies. It's too fine in texture. It's too spiky. It's too stiff. You want something thicker fibred with more movement in it for wet flies. Because because genetic, even the hens, I mean, some of these hens, you can tie dryers with, with their hackles. Yeah, absolutely. And again, they're not really appropriate for use on wet flies. If you speak to the sort of some of the Irish guys who are passionate about wet flies, they want soft hackles, something with movement in it. You see, where we, where we fish, uh, long ago in the, in the 50s and the 60s, in the 70s and the 80s, people used to fish wets. Nowadays, very few people in South Africa fish wet flies. 
And I've never understood that because wet flies are fantastic. Like my, one of my favorite still water patterns is a, okay, and, and I know I'm going to say this wrong, a Daulbach. Daulbach. How, how do you say it? Daulbach. Daulbach. Yeah. A Daulbach a is a deadly pattern. It is next level. No, I couldn't, couldn't disagree more. D- Daulbach is my uh, curse pattern that I can never catch on. Really? Yeah, I fish with uh, three or four of us fish regularly, and everybody else will catch on dialbacks, and I can't catch on them. And it's got okay. to the po- it's got to the point now. If I ever ask what fly they've caught on, they'll tell me it's a, dial- a dialback, even if it isn't, just to wind me up. Okay, but okay. In my defence, my dialbuck is very different to a standard dialbuck. For instance, like one of the who is who is this Angus uh, Magnus? What's his name? Magnus Angus. Magnus Angus. So he reviews this book of mine and he says, he basically gave me a little bit of flack for for, for my dull buck because he says it's not a dull buck. It's, that's, a, that's not a dull buck. And basically, it is a dull buck. But what I did was, instead of using the hackle fibers for the throat, I use CDC. Mm-hmm. Gives a bit more movement. Because it gives a lot more movement. And, and I fish dull bucks uh, basically stationary most of the time. I like I like fishing them like that. I'm not moving them along at pace and that kind of thing. Um, and and they deadly, you know. Jungle cock cheeks, a little bit of a red head, a little bit of yeah, CD steel. I actually don't understand why I haven't seen more dull bucks tied with CDC for throats. I actually don't. Yeah, no, I've not seen any type of ear tied with CDC for throats. Uh, the killing dial back that my, my friends use is normally tied with a bright red, glow bright head. Yes. And uh, holographic rib. And just basic bit of pheasant tail and a bit of a tail and a, a few hackle fibers for a throat. But we've got another fly we, we tie as well, which is basically a dial back, uh, which has got a claret tail, pheasant tail body. Sorry, a dark hairs of your body, mm-hmm. jungle cock cheeks, mm-hmm. and that's it. And that's a killing pattern when they're on the buzzers. And that's called Stan's the Man. Stan is the man. Yeah. Which was code when they were competition fishing for a particular fly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they do it yeah too. There's a fly called a, a pink odyssey. Uh, there's nothing pink in the fly. The whole thing is just black. Right. That makes sense. So, so they'll scream, pink odyssey, and then everyone, th- you know, and then it's actually a black fly. I was like, oh, my word. And that's the Natal team. For everyone listening, that, that's that team who has the pink odyssey, which is actually not pink at all. Um, <laughs> yes. So, okay, and tell me, in terms of, in terms of uh, materials like seals fur, do you do that as well? Some years ago, I bought 30 kilos of seals fur. Great quality. Never be able to get any more, I don't think. So when it's gone, it's gone. But yeah, I've still got seals fur, but uh, it's going to be something which disappears. Because seals fur to me is one of those materials that, that kind of a lot of people don't use anymore, but it's actually, it's fantastic stuff. But it, seals fur is brilliant. All my wet flies with dub bodies tied with seals fur. It's got that shine and sparkle. It makes a crunchy body and it's far superior to a lot of these modern dubbings, which I think are very lifeless. Yeah, and I love I love seals fur, like with the way light reacts in it, all of that. And uh, I mean, obviously, 
you get seals fur and then you get seals fur. Some of this, if you get bad quality seals fur, it's it's like it's like dubbing with 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 little metal wires, you know. Yeah, bad quality seals fur is good for some things like cleaning frying pans and saucepans, but it's not much good for supply time. <laughs> uh, the stuff you got is that from younger seals. Yeah, that's the real McCoy stuff off those little white baby seals, which the Canadians call. And uh, as I say, it's, it's become something which a lot of people sort of frown upon, really. Not necessarily fly tires, but, I mean, I think those those baby seals are still being killed, so it might, might as well be used as as not. Yeah, it's, it's got nothing to do with uh, fly tire, and it's about sort of a control of a population which they see as predating on fish or, or whatever up in, in Canada. No, and you have to do that. I mean, you have to control populations, unfortunately. Yeah, and um, why not make maximum use of it? It seems wrong not to really but i think i think seals fear will disappear and when, when my seals is gone i can't see me getting any more so realistically what i should be doing is stopping selling it now and wait till everybody else is sold out then i can sell it later for treble the price yeah, but you see you won't do that because you're not an arsehole steve <laughs> well that's a matter of opinion <laughs> <laughs> well what i find what, what i tend to find is and and this is what's refreshing uh, about you for me is that a, a lot of the time, if I look at fly fishing industry, it's new developments and things which are put into the into the industry are very much done with a commercial end in mind, you know, but not always necessarily with a long term goal in mind. It's about selling product as opposed to giving people something that's actually useful. Uh, look at the development of, of, of rods, fly fishing rods. I mean, I like some of these rods are broomsticks. I, I actually don't know how people are selling them. I, th I think tackle companies have got to keep bringing out new products to keep making money. I mean, I, I'm terrible. I'm not very materialistic. I'm not very into high-tech stuff. And, I mean, I've, I've got a, a couple of rods here which will keep me going for probably the rest of my life. I've got no desire to have any new, more fishing tackle. Still fishing with a Hardy Marcus reel, and uh, just hang on a second. No problem. Hello. I'm okay. Can I do, can I call you back a bit later? I've just got to something going on at the moment. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Still there? Yeah, yeah. I'm still here. I'm still just hang on one more second. Right, I'm just doing this podcast thing. Doing a podcast, just telling you. You still there? I'm here. Right, we're back in the room. Um, I can't remember where we were. No, no, don't worry. Uh, I'll get us back in. Um, okay. Do you ever import materials from other countries that you bring in? I got some stuff from India, basically, and I trade with uh, somebody in the in the US. They send me some American stuff, and I send them British stuff, and no money changes hands. But that's about it. I mean, and the quality of the stuff which I don't resource myself isn't as good as the stuff I do resource myself. But by being fairly harsh on the sort of the selection process, you can still get nice materials. But the the real uh, pristine great stuff I do is, is resourced by myself in the UK 
Okay. Um, I always found that Nature Spirit, that's some really good deer here, but I don't know if they've been sold over or what's happened to them, but it's not the same. I think Nature Spirit is still going, and maybe it's because demand is getting more and more and more, so they've got to sell more and more stuff, which maybe reflects on the quality, or perhaps they've got bigger and they haven't got the same people sorting it. It's one of those things. As soon as you get more people involved, quality suffers. I mean, uh, my cook sale is limited by what I can resource rather than by what I can sell. Okay. It's a strange situation. And to get more stuff, you just have to take wherever you can get, and then your quality would go down the pump. I just find, I think sometimes we try and overcomplicate these things. I mean, if you look at something like a, 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 like a shuttlecock, a shuttlecock is fantastic, but it's so simple. Look at an airfly. I don't... An air fly is fantastic. You know, the, the, they, they're basic. And look at a pheasant tail them. Also basic. You, you're not really, those patterns are going to be around forever because they're brilliant. And they're also simple to tie. I mean, my fly tie now, if it takes more than five minutes to tie, it's too, too complicated. Well, uh, there's a video, an old, old film of Frank Sawyer actually tying. A pheasant tail nymph, and he ties a pheasant tail spinner. Okay, and it's not edited. In, in it's not like modern editing that was shot an old film, and I think the entire video of him tying the pheasant tail nymph and the spinner is something like eight minutes long. Yeah, I can believe that. I, I, I could skin two partridges in eight minutes. Well, then you're very good. <laughs> when, when I used to go around doing demonstrations, I used to do uh, demonstrations for clubs on materials, looking at what's good and what's bad and some of the history behind them. And I always used to finish off with a partridge skinning demo. And I'd do the first one at standard sort of work rate and go through it all very sort of, uh, you know, telling everybody what the the tricks are. And then the second one, I'd say, right, we'll do this one fast. And the fastest I ever did one was 72 seconds from a, from a bird to a flat skin on a piece of paper. Really? You wouldn't do them all that fast, but uh, yeah. So again, all technique. I'm not good. I mean, I, I use a scalpel and the biggest thing I've ever, I've ever had to skin was a peacock. Yeah, I've done peacocks. Peacocks are big, aren't they? They're mauling. Oh, my word. I didn't do it in one piece, though. Eventually, I decided I'm going to do it in sections because it was just too much bird for me. Uh, some birds are easy to skin. Some are difficult. Partridge are the easiest. The, really? English partridge are the easiest to skin. The trouble with English partridge is they're hard to get. Why is that? Basically, because most of them are wild birds and modern farming practices haven't suited them and they've lost 80% of the population in the last 20 years. So they're quite a scarce thing. The only places they've found in any numbers is on shooting estates where the habitat's managed correctly for them. They're like a network of small fields, hedgerows. Uh, they need insects for the chicks. So unless you manage for them, they, they rapidly disappear. And the, the worst thing you'd ever do would be to take partridge off the shooting list because nobody would then manage the land correctly for them. Okay. Um, and, and, and I mean, things like pheasants, pheas ringneck pheasants are like, there are plenty of them in the UK. Thousands and thousands and thousands. There's two in the garden 10 minutes ago in front of them. Are those, are those, are they indigenous to the UK? 
No, they've been introduced for shooting, and millions of pheasants are released every year on the shoots. So where do they come from? Asia? Yeah, Asia, all the way across Asia, different subspecies. Okay. And I mean, I mean, I see you do melanistic pheasants and you do all sorts of stuff. Yeah, they're just colour variations. I mean, what happens is some shoots will say, well, we'll put melanistics down because they fly better or they don't wander as much. Or they'll put the Michigan bluebacks down because, they, again, you know, they, they've got some theories about how they fly. But it sort of goes cyclical, there. these fads and there's sort of certain breeds are in fashion, really, with the shoots. And that's what happens. Melanistics are out of favour at the moment; they're quite hard to get. And M gold, you can. Do you ever get M gold? To get M gold, you'd have to breed them specifically because they're crossed between goldens and Amherst. So to get M gold pheasants, you, you've got to cross the right birds, and then you've got to keep them into the second year when the the tail feathers uh, mature. So that's a specialist thing. I only do dead stuff. Breeding things is not for me. Okay, no, that's good. I mean, there used to be a guy in the in Australia, um, Tambo Fine Feathers, he did he did some fantastic stuff, but I think he, he doesn't do it anymore. I don't think it's viable. You'd have to charge so much for it that, uh, you know, it's only appealed to certain people, and it's hard work. You've got to keep these things and keep them going and have them in the right condition, and you know how fussy fly ties are. It's got to be just so. So I don't think it's that viable to do that. And... Uh, do you ever in peacock in the UK? How how available is peacock? Uh, you get peacock from India. All the peacock comes out of India. So in South Africa, we have a lot of peacock here. Mm-hmm. Peacock peacock are like rabbits. They like they breed like vermin. Right, didn't realize that. No, no, we actually uh, it, it it was there's this one area near where I live where there was like this feral population of peacocks. And peacocks are actually violent birds. Eh? They, they kill guinea fowl and they go crazy. So uh, our Cape Nature actually was shooting them. Yeah, that makes sense. And they, had a, and they sort of had a, a, a community group who would quietly get rid of these peacocks, you know. Uh, and I used to get peacock... Uh, I used to get peacock skin or carcasses from those guys. They'd phone me and say, oh, we've got, we've got a couple here. And then I'd skin them and uh, beautiful feathers. And, I mean, I don't feel bad about it because it's an exotic bird, you know. Yeah, it's just past, really. We've got, a, we've got a species of fish in South Africa called a yellowfish. Yeah, I've and seen those. It's, they look cool. It's, it's basically like similar to a European barbel, okay. Yeah. And – those things are now the primary fly fishing species in South Africa. We fish more for those than for trout, for anything else. Certainly look nice fish to catch. And, uh, you know, we see more and more about the yellow fish. A lot of it coming from yourself, I think. And uh, looks good, but nothing like that here. Really. We've got barbel, but catching, catching those on the fly isn't a simple thing to do. Really? Can, can be done, but... Uh, you're sort of fishing heavy nymphs and things and really need to sight fish to them, which isn't always easy. So yellows are extremely user-friendly. I mean, you can take the, the river where I fish, thousands of them migrate up there every year in spring and summer to, to breed. Right. But e- even once they've bred, they stay in the system. So you've got, if you take a beginner there and teach them dry fly fishing, 
he's got thousands of fish like in a day you can you can cast at 300 sighted fish in a day no problem no it'd be nothing like that here with barbel you, you don't see them unless they're you know in the shallow gravel runs and then if they're grubbing on the bottom they don't feed off the surface okay yeah, and our, and our, I mean our yellows are generally also also very in in most of the rivers are, are 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 sort of targeted with nymphs, deep nymphs, and that kind of thing. But in this place where I go, they feed on the top like ninety percent of the time, and you excite them. and And big fish, six seven pound fish on a seven x tippet size eighteen dry, that kind of thing. Sounds sounds uh, pretty exciting. No, it, it, really, and they—I mean—they run. They're just super, super, super strong. Okay, another thing I want to ask you: in terms of fishing flies, what flies? What would your say top three fishing flies be, and why? CDC emerger. My CDC emerger is tied with uh, usually a hurl body, very finely ribbed, just to strengthen it. Three CDC feathers pointing backwards like an F, F fly star wing, then mm-hmm. dubbed CDC for the head. Quite often there'll be an, an aiming point and then maybe red or green. That's a good fly for me. Okay. Uh, foam dries. Mm-hmm. Foam dry tied with two hopper legs of whatever colour you want. A simple bit of foam uh, for, for a body. And then either a dubbed CDC or a seal's fur head. Okay, when you're saying hopper legs, I just want to clarify here. You are you talking English hopper legs? You're talking like not, not, not at not, not pheasant tail. Okay, because hopper legs in, in an American sense would mean something else. No, the English style with the they're just the standard two pheasant tails knotted together. Okay, but, so daddies, basically yeah. foam daddies. Okay. Yeah, no, smaller than that, size fourteens or twelves, in a, a range of colours. I'll, I'll send you some pictures. Uh, and probably just a simple tadpole-type lure for early season with a four-mil tungsten bead head in bright green, body black, tail black, bit of sparkle in the tail, and that fly would catch me if I I caught 100 fish early season, 95 of them would come to that pattern. Okay. And if that doesn't work, the same in orange, but still with the green head, or the same in white with the green head, just dead simple super effective fish catching flies fantastic yeah we i mean i fish the same stuff more or less we don't we don't really fish daddies in south africa but that cdc emerger tadpoles fantastic beautiful daddies will be good here in september time but it's sort of a, a short short spell i did catch it i did catch a really nice uh, rainbow on taking spent mayflies on a firm bodied daddy the other night but again, it, it was sitting flush, flush in the surface, just giving it a twitch. And uh, yeah, they work. But those three flies would be my go-to flies, really. Thank you for coming on the show. It's been fantastic talking to you. I love what you do. And I love I love the fact that you, you, you give quality materials, that they are accessible, and that you, as a person, are accessible. That's been my pleasure, and that's what I try and do. I say materials are my thing and uh, it's just a, a little daft hobby that got a bit out of hand really and don't think it's some massive setup because it isn't but I just try my best to do what I can <laughs> <laughs>